talk to that teenager and you're worried. You stayed up all night waiting for them and they come back and it's, it's right at the time they said they'd be back. And they're sweating. And you look at your teenager and you say, what have you been doing? And they tell you, okay, I'm going to be honest. I was throwing bottles and glasses against walls and shattering them. I was crushing TVs and laptops and computers. I was even throwing printers to the ground. I was smashing electronics. But then they stop and say, but don't worry. Actually paid somebody that would cover me while I did this. Let's just pause. How would you be feeling as a parent in that moment? I don't know. I'm not there yet. I know I would be a little worried. But what if your really clever teenager then followed it up by saying, you know what, mom, dad, it's okay. I was out at an anger room. Have you ever heard of an anger room? The New York Times reported recently on a Dallas woman who has started what she calls an anger room. It's a space where stressed out people can relieve their tension in a safe and nonviolent way by smashing mannequins and televisions and furniture and other objects. And it's not just Dallas or here in Texas. It's in New York. It's in cities all over the country. Maybe you've heard of these smash rooms or rage rooms or anger rooms. The New York Times went on to report uh, a group who visited a rage room in New York City where they said, quote, visitors can come and enjoy a cocktail before smashing everything from their empty glasses to printers and computers. Rage rooms are proliferating across the country. Maybe you've heard of these. Maybe some of you listening have actually been to a rage room before. One owner of a rage room said this, quote, I think of it as a game. It's a fun activity. It's outside the box and it's new, it's unique, it's refreshing. Close quote. There's a rage room here in Austin. It's called 512 Rage Room. It's open Thursday to Sunday from 2 to 10 p.m. So if you get mad on a Monday, I'm sorry they're closed. It's just Thursday to Sunday, 2 to 10 p.m. That's what our culture thinks about anger. Often anger is viewed as a joke, funny, no big deal, even as a form of exercise or entertainment in the form of a rage room. But Jesus, what does Jesus think about anger? How does Jesus want us, you and me, to think about anger? That's what we have the privilege to look at today. So I want to invite you, turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 21 to 26. Go to Matthew 5 in your copy of God's Word. We're thinking today about the Sermon on the Mount, this section on anger. Matthew 5, verses 21 to 26. Begin in verse 21. Here's the Word of the Lord. Matthew 5, 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. 
But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. It's God's word. Where in the world did Jesus think to start blasting his listeners with a a lecture on anger. What's going on? Is Jesus being mean here, heavy-handed? Why is he talking about this? If we remember the context for just a moment, this is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is speaking a kingdom manifesto to those who call themselves followers of him or disciples of him. And in this kingdom manifesto, he's laying out truths about the heavenly kingdom, about what a true follower of, tr- of Christ would look like. Jesus is giving in this section that we've kind of landed in in this moment, this section is the first of six different sections where Jesus would say, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. There's six of those, back to back to back. And this is the first of those six paragraphs, if you will, those six sayings. And all of this is flowing out of what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, verses 17 through 20. If you can glance at that with your eyes, it would be helpful right now. Look at 17 through 20. Verse 17, Jesus says, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus came to fill full the law. So now he's instructing his hearers about the law. And he's covering topics, everything from anger sexual lust, to marriage, to how we keep our word, to how we deal with enemies. And he's giving insight into the law, and he's clearing up bad misconceptions about the law. But he's not setting the law aside. He's filling it full with deeper and greater meaning and insight. And that's what we have here. And remember, Jesus is not merely speaking just to impress people. Although at the very last part of the Sermon on the Mount, we know that the hearers heard him with great authority because he taught not as the scribes taught. But Jesus isn't speaking just to impress others. He's speaking this, this instruction about the law, for the sake of those listening that they would actually teach others and do what he's talking about. If you put your eyes on verse 19, Matthew 5, 19, Jesus had already spoken about commandments and he said, Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The them he's referring to are commandments, and now he's explaining the commandments of God. So in this passage we're reading, it is about anger, but it's about us having an acute awareness of anger and how important it is so that we might live different. So verses 17 through 20 are kind of a launch pad, if you will, for these six rockets that are getting fired off by Jesus that are exploding 
the target of a superficial understanding of the law. In fact, the main idea of this passage today is that kingdom citizens, if you call yourself a follower of Christ, if you're in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, kingdom citizens ought to have a keen legal awareness, different from the world, understanding how God views the law, those kind of standards of divine judgment. But what would the divine judge, the divine law say about anger? That's what Jesus wants you and I to know today. So the passage we read a few moments ago, we could boil it down to two ideas that actually capture something of the structure and the application for us. These will actually be the two points of the sermon today. Here they are. Point number one, Christians take anger seriously. Christians take anger seriously. This is verses 21 through 22. And then the second point, the second idea of this passage is Christians deal with anger urgently. Christians deal with anger urgently. This is verses 23 to 26. This also captures something of the structure of the passage. Those four statements that come right after each other, that someone is liable to judgment in verse 21, and then verse 22, three times it says someone is liable to judgment or liable to a council or liable to hell. Those liable to statements, even when we look at our English translations, are so helpful. We see the structure here. Jesus is making a firm, fixed point about anger how serious we need to take it. And he follows it up with two illustrations. One illustration of a person at a temple offering something on the altar, and then another illustration of a person perhaps being taken to court for wronging another person. Those two illustrations will help us see how urgently to take anger, and these four statements, these liable two statements, will help teach us how seriously we take anger. Let's look at those together. Verse 21. Verse 21 gives us the first reason we should take anger so seriously. And it's this, because we should take anger seriously because Jesus takes anger seriously. As serious as murder. Did you catch that? Verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Jesus says what is crystal clear here. It's crystal clear. Everyone knew if you murder someone or someone murders someone, that person, the murderer, is liable to judgment. Liable just means subject to or in danger of or warranting judgment. Nothing controversial in that statement. In fact, the Jewish audience listening would have immediately, without any hesitation, thought of the sixth commandment of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not murder. And Jesus is quoting that sixth commandment. It's crystal clear. This is coming from Exodus 20. He knows the law. They know the law. But what's interesting here is he goes from what's clear and he pivots into a parallel statement of what is then surprising. He says, 
Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And without skipping a beat, he then says in a parallel phrase, the exact wording in the original language and the exact wording in our English translations, liable to judgment. He says, but I say to you, verse 22, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So Jesus links it together. Murder and anger. He puts them in the same category of being liable to judgment. So that's the first reason why we want to take anger seriously. Before we say anything else, we can simply say, Jesus takes it seriously. And I want to pause and just ask you, do you take anger seriously? And by that I mean it's not a joke, it's not a game to you. Do you take it seriously? Anger is something that must be given careful and sober consideration, evaluation and weight to it, because Jesus wants us to think that way. You might be the type of person who thinks, I get angry all the time and I can't stand that about myself. It causes so much damage. Or you might be the type of person that thinks, I'm, I'm pretty laid back. I don't get angry that often. Anger's not a big deal to me. Jesus is talking to both types of people today, wanting them to take anger more seriously. So the first reason we take it serious is just simply because Jesus does. But there's more to say than that. Why? Why does Jesus take it serious? Well, the second reason we take anger seriously because anger is a root that bears fruits of harm to others, whether it be murder or insults. That's coming from the passage here. Do you see how the phrase Jesus says about anger is sandwiched right in between talking about murder and talking about insults? Jesus knows what that root of anger can produce. Before we get too far, let's just define anger for a moment. Maybe we all have different definitions. Anger. Anger occurs in us it's an emotion, it's a reaction, it's a response when we see something wrong or bad happening. In other words, at, at street level vocabulary, anger is saying, I'm against that. I'm against that. It's an active displeasure towards something that we think matters and is not right. That's anger. But our anger is complex, it's not clean. Our anger is often sinful. Sinful anger focuses inordinately on self, our self being wronged. We think of ourself or, or even punishing the offender instead of purely on the moral content of the offense. And Jesus here is dealing with interpersonal anger in this passage. Yes, there are other places in the scripture where Anger is mentioned. There's even a category of righteous anger. In fact, last year, Ryan preached a sermon um, on really distinguishing between righteous anger and sinful anger. Look at my notes here. On October 27th, 2019, the roots of sinful anger, Ryan preached on James 4. That sermon's on our website. If you want to know more about that, check it out. The very next week, Samuel, he preached a sermon on Ephesians 4 on 
titled Other Fruits of Anger. You can go to those sermons. They're on our website. If you click on pre-COVID sermons, there's even a topic menu. You can click on it and drop down. There's much more we could say about anger today. But if you want to learn more, go to those sermons. Today, I want to anchor everything on the main idea. Jesus is just wanting to drive home the point, take anger seriously. And this second reason we take it serious is because it gives harm to others in the form of murder or insults even. We know from the scripture we heard earlier in the service in Genesis 4, Cain was angry and it led to murder of his brother. The scriptures validate what Jesus says here when Jesus says whoever's angry is liable to judgment. Because you remember what happened with Cain? Even before he killed his brother, the Lord confronted him. The Lord confronted his anger. Even before it bore its fruit of murder. So the Lord cares tremendously about the root of anger. As well as the fruits. We could even look at a place like the New Testament where it's not so much murder, but the bitter, harsh, harmful fruits of anger happen. Do you remember the story of the prodigal son? This man leaves and squanders his family's wealth. Everybody thinks he's dead, but he returns. And the father embraces him. But the older brother who had stayed back, when he sees his son, his father's son return, his brother, and they throw a party for him, all the wires get tripped up in his brain. He's angry. He's upset they're throwing a party. They're throwing a party because he's alive, not because he did a bunch of virtuous great things. He squandered his family's wealth, lived recklessly. But the older brother, we're told in Luke 15, refuses to participate in the party, refuses to even go in, refuses to talk to others. The father goes out and tries to entreat him. Here's what the scriptures say in Luke 15. He was angry and refused to go in. The Bible is filled with examples of how anger disrupts and harms others. So even if it's not murder, it could be other damaging effects. We take anger seriously because Jesus does. We take it seriously because it has damaging effects. It harms others. And number three, we take it seriously because it, it warrants an earthly judgment. It might have sounded peculiar when we read verse 22 and we, we said the word counsel. What's Jesus talking about there? When Jesus says in verse 22, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the counsel. Some of your translations might say the word raka, R-A-C-A. Whoever says raka will be liable to the council. That's an exact transliteration of what's going on in the original language. That word in our English Bibles for insults or that word raka, that means to insult someone. To say literally, you're empty-headed. You empty-head. You idiot. Insults. That word counsel means Sanhedrin. That's what the original word says there, the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the local court, actually the highest court for the Jewish nation. 
If you want to read more about that, Matthew 26 and Luke 22 give an inside glimpse during the trial of Jesus of how the Sanhedrin operates. But what's going on here? Why, why does Jesus go from saying, if you murder, you're liable to judgment. If you're anger, if you have angry, angry feelings and anger, you're liable to judgment. And then he seems to just immediately skid over into saying, and yeah, if you insult someone, you're liable to the Sanhedrin. Well, that's because he's trying to show everyone, you already intuitively know if you kill someone, you're going to be held liable in court. And you already, already intuitively know that if you insult someone in such a way, in such a severity, you can be held liable to local authorities. If you were to go online today and look up the Texas Penal Code, Section 42, you would see disorderly conduct, how abusive, profane, vulgar language, even threats, can be held in the court of law. So even today, it's a fact that even with our words, short of killing someone, our words can make us liable to local jurisdiction. And Jesus is saying all this so that we take anger seriously because it warrants earthly judgment. And he's using this to set up another parallel phrase. And that's in verse 22 at the end. And this is actually our fourth reason. We take anger seriously because it warrants divine judgment. Not just earthly judgment, divine judgment. We get this idea from where Jesus says there, verse 22 at the end, whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. This isn't a gradation here of saying, you fool is somehow worse than insulting someone earlier in the verse. He's not contrasting the two. He's comparing the two. He's saying if you insult someone, if you say, you fool, if you call somebody worthless or an idiot or they're so stupid or they're a blockhead or you cuss, you could fill in the blank in many different ways of how you could insult someone. Jesus is showing the parallel. That's liable to eternal judgment. That's why we take anger seriously. I like how Martin Lloyd-Jones captured it well. He said, contempt and scorn and derision, different ways men can be destroyed short of murder. You can destroy a man's character, his reputation. Nursing those thoughts against people is anger. Quote, so even if you don't touch a person's body, you can be seeking to kill them and kill something about them. That's why anger is to be taken so seriously. It warrants eternal judgment, divine judgment. When Jesus says you'll be liable to the hell of fire for insulting others, what does he mean, hell of fire? We could translate that verse the Gehenna, maybe you've heard that word. I still vividly remember growing up in the Baptist church I grew up in, the first time I ever remember hearing our pastor reference something in the Greek language was this word. It arrested my attention. I was in middle school at the time. And he said, Gehenna, it means Valley of Hinnom. And I thought, I don't know what the Hinnom Valley is. That doesn't help me. And then he went on to explain, and I've never forgotten this, and commentaries and study Bibles will all say the same thing. Gehenna, or the Valley of Hinnom, was an area south of Jerusalem, a big ravine, a deep valley that was filthy, 
and had fires perpetually burning. Why? Because it was the trash dump, the garbage heap of the city. Trash would be burned there. There would be animal carcasses there, all kinds of filth. There were constant fires burning. In fact, in the Old Testament, it was the site of child sacrifice. People would throw their infants into this ravine and area to burn them, to worship the demon god Moloch. This is a wicked place, and all the Jews knew of it, especially everyone in Jerusalem. So when Jesus says the hell of fire, anytime you see the word hell used by Jesus in the New Testament, it's that word Gehenna translated as hell. And Jesus takes that imagery and he picks it up and he uses it to show us what eternal judgment is like. Where there's always burning, the smell of sulfur, fires. So don't miss what Jesus says here. He says, whoever says, you fool. If you insult someone, you are liable to hell. The holier we become, the more angry we'll be at sin, but contempt and vilifying anger are different. And that's what Jesus is getting at here, that contempt for others, that vilifying anger, the anger of personal relationships. So any kind of name-calling that you would do to another person, to call them names, to belittle them, to let your microcosms of anger and hate out at them, If you let that flash forth with them, you are liable to hell. And as we know from the context of the Sermon on the Mount in these paragraphs, Jesus is getting at the heart. So even if you don't say it out loud, but your heart lurches forward with that thought on someone, you're no different than a murderer. Because that root of anger that would cause you to kill someone's physical life is the same root that would cause you to completely tear someone up and down with your words. And it's that same root that would cause you to, for whatever reason, be too afraid to say it out loud, but to think those thoughts and nurse those thoughts towards them. It's all the same root, anger. Jesus wants us to take anger seriously. So I'm asking you today, do you take it that seriously? Who among us is not guilty of vilifying another person? The anger we need to take most seriously is not just our own or someone else's, but it's God's anger at sin. That's why anger is liable to judgment. Because you and I are made in the image of God. So whenever we're angry at another person, sinful anger, we're sinning against the very image of God. All of us deserve hell, do we not? But this is why Christ came to save sinners. To save everyone who's ever been angry, which is every human being. Some of us, our anger shows more outwardly than others, but the the roots of anger show up in all of our hearts. And even though God made us in his image to actually love and serve him and love others and serve them for God's glory, worship him, adore him. Instead, we've turned inwardly on ourselves, just like our first parents, Adam and Eve. And we've rejected what God has said, 
We've rejected what he said about anger and how serious it is. And we play the game, well, I haven't killed anybody. Well, they need to get over it. It was just words. They need to deal with it. Or maybe our anger doesn't even show up outside of us. God sees it all. He sees us all as murderers because of how we've hated others. And so we are liable to his wrath, his anger. But God sent Christ to save anyone who would acknowledge before the Lord, yes, Lord, I I am a murderer and I'm worse than that. And if we look to Jesus who came to this earth perfectly living a life that never displayed sinful anger, if we look to his life that was given for us on the cross, Jesus died and shed his blood to be a sacrifice and a propitiation, a substitute for all those people who deserve God's wrath. All those people who who turn from sin and, and agree with God, yes, God, you're right about my sin. Those are the ones Jesus died for. Jesus died for everyone who turns from their sin. And then he rose again. He rose from the grave, proving he really was who he said he was, that his sacrifice is complete. So I want to invite you today, if you've never realized how your sin incurs the wrath of God, the rightful anger of God at your sin, if you've never taken your sin seriously or your anger seriously, look to the cross. It shows you how serious sin must be taken. And put your faith and trust in Jesus. He rose again from the grave and then went to be with the Father and promises to come again. We can trust his life. And maybe you're used to hearing preachers or others say, turn, turn from sin and trust in Christ. And what you hear is, well, how can I turn from sin and never sin again? When you hear Christians or others say, turn from your sin, it doesn't mean you will then be sinless the rest of your life. It means that you now take God's side against your sin rather than siding with your sin against God and his ways. And you're able to take God's side because you're united to his son by faith. And even though you will still sin between now and the time you're with the Lord in heaven, if you've placed your faith in Christ, that sin that you commit in this life is always, again, repentant sin, sin that you continually turn from your whole life. Anger is one of those things. No matter how seriously you want to take anger in this moment, no matter how much you want to obey what Jesus is saying here, there will likely be a time in the future where you're sinfully angry again. But Jesus gives us hope with how to deal with that. He gives us some application. So let's look now not just at how serious we need to take anger, but what to do about it. Jesus equips us. So the first part of the, the message, take it seriously, take anger seriously. The second part, deal with anger urgently. Let's look at that. This is verses 23 to 26. Jesus shows us here how to suffocate the flames of anger with reconciliation. 
two examples he gives. One has kind of an informal feel to it because it's seemingly between brothers and sisters. It's not involving a court or contracts like the second example. might be something of the world. But both of them convey the same point. Deal with anger urgently by reconciliation. I can't help but mention this because it's, I think it's going to be helpful for us. Before we look at these two examples, pause for a moment and just think about how anger can overtake your mind and heart. We're going to use this, this thought in just a second to look at these examples. But think for a moment how anger can overtake your heart. I like how Paul Tripp said it in this book, Good and Angry. Ask yourself if you resonate with this. This is going to help launch us into these illustrations. Anger. When you get angry, ask yourself if this is true. Anger seeks to color the criminal justice system in your mind. It persuades you to play all the prosecuting roles in the courtroom of your mind. Simultaneously, you are the innocent victim and the offended plaintiff. You are the zealous investigator and the sheriff serving the summons to the offender. You are the district attorney, the DA, pressing home irrefutable charges. You provide the eyewitness testimony to the crimes, and you are the stern judge ready to mete out punishment. And you are the unanimous jury disposing of every thin alibi in extenuating circumstances, finding the accused guilty as charged. You are the jailer, of the convicted felons, and you are the hangman ready to administer capital punishment to evildoers. This private courtroom of the mind, this judicial mental attitude, is written deeply into the nature of anger. Can you resonate with that? It's a sham courtroom in our mind because the person is already guilty before the trial has happened. Anger can take over so let's leverage that as we look at these examples. Why would Jesus not give us examples of how to deal with anger of when we are angry? Did you notice how shocking verse 23 is? Look at it. Put your eyes on verse 23. Jesus is not aiming his thoughts at the person who is angry. He's aiming his thoughts and application at the person who caused the anger. That's counterintuitive. If we're going to take anger seriously, this is the living proof of it. Not that we just take anger seriously when we get mad at something, but can we take anger seriously when we know someone else has reason to be mad at us? That's what these examples show. So look at it with me. This is part two. We deal with anger urgently. Verse 23. Verse 23. If you're offering your gift at the altar... That would just be a common thing that the Jews would do. Offer a gift at the altar. And there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. Be reconciled to your brother, then come offer your gift. So he doesn't say, if you have something against your brother, he says the reverse. If your brother has something against you, if you have behaved poorly to them, we're to deal with anger urgently. Jesus gives us 
three ways to deal with anger urgently in these two pictures. I want to show you that. The first, we need to have a specific tangible urgency. Not a theoretical urgency, but a tangible urgency that takes real steps toward the one we have wronged. It may sound humorous, but aren't there a lot of pseudo-urgent ways we can deal with somebody who might be mad at us? We avoid them, try to cover it up. Notice Jesus didn't say here in verse 23, if you remember your brother has something against you, stop and pray urgently about it. Just pray about it and then go back to offering your gift. He doesn't say that. Jesus doesn't say here, if you're offering your gift and you remember somebody has something against you, conveniently push it off later. Push it off later to a better time in your schedule and then go deal with it. Nope. He doesn't say if you are offering your gift and you remember your brother has something against you, suppress the thought. Just bury it. Lean into the power of positive thinking. Remember, time heals all wounds. Don't worry about it. He doesn't say that either. Jesus says, if you remember, go. Would it be strange or weird to you to see church members at some church service throughout the year get up in the middle of a service and just leave and go reconcile themselves with another church member? Would that seem strange to you or would you see that as obedience to this command? Jesus is saying, take tangible urgency, concrete steps to deal with the possibility of someone who could have reason to be angry at you. They could be tempted to be angry at you. You know you've done wrong. Jesus wants us to be urgent. It means we take the initiative without delay or excuses. It's an urgency that's not very convenient. It's not always easy. It will feel disruptive to your normal plans and what you had going on. But if you know yourself to have behaved in the wrong, initiative is placed upon you to stop the broken relationship from continuing to be sour. So whether the anger is yours or someone else's, here it's clearly someone else's. Jesus wants you to take that seriously and not have the posture of waiting, which we so often do. Well, if they're mad enough about it, they'll come talk to me, won't they? Well, I, I'm unworthy to go talk to them. I, how can I help? I, I don't have anything to offer. I'm the one who did wrong. There's all kinds of excuses we can come up with. Jesus is saying here, if you know you've done wrong, Go make it right. This is how we love our neighbor as ourselves. The excuses of I'm powerless to do something is rebuked by what Jesus says here. You might be powerless to make them reconcile with you, but you're not powerless to humbly come and confess and admit you're wrong and create a space to that to then listen to them. Make peace. Reconciliation is to be sought urgently. So we do it tangibly, an urge, urgent, tangible way, but we also, secondly, have a weighty urgency about what we're doing. Did you notice here that Jesus gives the one example that to the average Jewish mind would seem like the most unthinkable place to stop what you're doing and go deal with anger? 
offering a gift at the altar. Isn't that the most holy, reverent, devout, pious thing that a good Jew could be doing at this time? Jesus goes right to that pinnacle of spiritual devotion and he plucks that out and he says, even then. This fits with 1 Samuel 15, doesn't it? Where Saul is rebuked because he thinks that sacrifice is better than obedience when God says, no, 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 no. To obey is better than sacrifice. We see here in this example of someone leaving their gift on the altar to go and be reconciled. A weighty urgency. We see here that reconciliation is more important than religious rituals. It's more important than religious duties. It's more important than religious obligations when you know you've wronged someone. Make it right. There was a man who lived way back in the 4th century, the early church, and he said it this way, quote, Jesus does not receive the sacrifice of worship without the sacrifice of love. Or someone from the modern day, D.A. Carson, many of you know of him, he's a Bible scholar, he said, religious duties become mere pretense and a sham if the worshiper has behaved poorly that his brother has something against him. Men love to substitute ceremony for integrity, purity, and love, but Jesus will have none of it. Isn't relational fruit better than religious accomplishment? Husbands, when you've wronged your wife and you know it, wouldn't it be better to stop and, and gently pursue reconciliation than saying, yeah, I did wrong, but I can't talk to you right now, and I've got stuff to do, and I'm going to go do these chores. Would you rather look out your window at freshly manicured lawn and grass and maybe things you accomplished, or would you rather look in the eyes of your wife who you're reconciled with? Relational fruit is always better than other accomplishments we could go after. Husbands and wives specifically, you know how to push each other's buttons. You know how to twist even a verse like this and say, but hey, Jesus says we've got to talk about it right now. And you actually bully and push your spouse into they have to talk the moment you want them to. No, the, the weighty urgency here is a, a humble going and seeking that person. Jesus calls for us to have a weighty urgency. But then he also, lastly, this is the last part of the sermon, he calls us to have an urgent urgency. By that I just mean you do see that time is ticking. A real urgency, not an illusion that what you think is urgent, but what would be urgent to the situation. We see this. This is all coming from that second example Jesus gives. Look at verse 25 and 26. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you'll never get out till you've paid the last penny. Jesus is showing us here the consequences that are set in motion because reconciliation has been delayed. If somebody takes a hands-off approach, I wronged them, so they need to now be in the driver's seat. I don't need to go to them. They're going to tell me when I need to go to them. 
I'm powerless, I can't do anything. If you take this delayed hands-off approach and you just sit back, the clock is ticking on some irreversible consequences that might come. That's what Jesus shows us here. He says there in verse 25, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Going to court, what? Is somebody suing somebody else? Well, that's what it seems like here. Most likely what Jesus is referring to here is debtor's prison. Debtor's prison. This is not a place you want to be. So think about if a person defaulted in their debts, could be financial or something else, if they default in their debts at this time, they could be put in prison until that amount was paid. And while there, that person can scarcely pay their debts because they're in prison, they're not working. So to affect their release, friends, close relatives, family would pull together and try to start paying off a debt, maybe even making big sacrifices to bail someone out of debtor's prison to provide the cash to pay the debt. And Jesus is saying here, come to terms quickly lest you go to prison. Wouldn't it be better to come up with a way to pay and not go to prison than go to prison and still have to pay and now everybody else has to pay for it? So we need to have a real urgent urgency to reconciling situations where we've wronged another because as we see here it affects other relationships others get splashed on with that problem or issue it's negative it's draining upon others it's costly to others they have to help you they get inconvenienced they get suffocated under the flames of anger all because you took the hands-off approach I'm not going to deal with it and it also hurts you not just others you're in prison you're entrapped it makes it seem like you've now been forced to reconcile rather than wanting to reconcile. We all know it's better to confess than to be caught. And we all know it's better to be caught and tell the truth than be caught and shuffle our feet and lie and act like, no, I'm not really caught. Jesus wants us to be urgent in our reconciliation. So brothers and sisters, do you take anger seriously and do you deal with it urgently? That rage room that we started off with today talking about, the smash room, the rage room, that room is in our hearts. We don't take anger that seriously. And we don't deal with it that urgently. But praise be to God that Jesus takes anger so seriously, he would die on the cross for your anger. And praise be to God that Jesus takes anger dealing with it so urgently that he would give his life as a ransom for many, that he would instruct us how to deal with anger. There's no better perspective on anger than Jesus gives us here. Will you take his word for it? I hope you'll be blessed as you take his word for it. Thank you. All of those of you who are already thinking ahead to the family gatherings and the holidays, how you're going to be really tempted to be angry with other family members who think about the pandemic differently than you do, of what's safe and mask and distances. Think about all the relational friction that's going to come in the holidays. Thank you to those of you who are already are not just fearing man of what others are going to think of you, but you're fearing God and you're fearing wronging others giving them reason to be angry at you.
Thank you for thinking ahead. Thank you for taking anger seriously. There's so much we could say. Thank you for keeping short accounts on your anger and dealing with it urgently. Many of you have been examples to me and examples to each other. Let's live out what Jesus calls us to here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you teach us how to deal with anger without being left to our own feelings of how important or not important it is. We thank you, Lord, for calling us to look at your anger and the anger of others, not merely our own. Help us, Lord, to be those who are reconcilers, peacemakers, those who bring harmony in the relationships we have. Lord, give us the courage, we pray, by your spirit, give us the courage to pursue those that we know we have wronged, trusting that your word encourages us in this way, that if we do that, we're following your, your will towards reconciliation. We thank you for your son Christ who died for our angry hearts. It's in his name that we pray, amen.